welcome to Breakfast with Tiffany Show. My name is Tiffany Rosdell and I am a Tokyo-based transformational lifestyle coach. In each episode of this podcast, I want to explore the positive transitions other people have made to, how they freed themselves from their struggles, what pushed them to overcome their difficulties, and how and why they felt like they could overcome. Breakfast with Tiffany Show is really all about the transitions everyone who wants to succeed makes and what they did to get there. As such, while the focus is on LGBTQ plus journeys, I want to share the stories of all people who have found their way to success. My hope is to have this platform for all of us to be together while listening to successful stories, amazing life experiences, inspirational journeys, as well as having good laughs and lots of smiles. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce you to something quite extraordinary. It's the Breakfast with Tiffany Show podcast. And now, it is with great pleasure that I introduce you to your host, Tiffany Rossdale. Welcome to Breakfast with Tiffany Show, and this is your host, Tiffany Rossdale. I am grateful for you for tuning in today for another episode of the Breakfast with Tiffany Show, and I am delighted to have a special guest today, a new friend that I recently met. Just love her stories, and I thought, why not share it on a podcast? So without further ado, let me introduce you to a new friend, Jenny. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Hello. I'm so happy to uh, finally be able to be here and uh, spend some time speaking with you. Yes. So I want to start by asking you, how are you loving yourself today? I'm kind of a neat freak. And so for me, keeping my apartment in really good condition, is it also makes me feel about better about myself and that kind of uh, both appreciation of myself and my immediate surroundings, I guess, is what I'm going for. Oh, I love that. What motivates you to wake up in the morning? I have a very project-oriented personality. I think I kind of get that from my dad. He's, he's very much the same way, where I would prefer to get up and either get to school and get to work or on the weekend, you know, get going with whatever projects I have for the day. I'd rather do that than be lazy around in bed. And so generally speaking, as soon as I wake up, it's like, okay, let's go. I've got places to be, things to do. The idea of making progress in life in general, that's kind of my motivation. Oh, that's so great. Um, do you have any like morning rituals? Uh, it's actually more evening rituals. Mm. I'm one of those people who will spend a good 15, 30 minutes before I go to bed at night and I'll set out my backpack and my textbooks and all my school work items and I'll set out my my school clothes sort of in a line and it's remarkable how a lot of the habits that make a person a good student also make a person a good teacher <laughs> mm, mm. a lot of the same preparation work sort of applies and so I, I just sort of have adopted my college graduate student habits uh, which admittedly were better than my college undergraduate student habits and I, I've just adopted those into my, my work habits. And so that as soon as I wake up, I've got everything 
you know, all my ducks in a row and I don't have to hunt through my closet. I know exactly what I'm going to wear. I don't have to go around the apartment looking for things that are all laid out. Mm, I completely agree with you. Like, it's so important to have um, evening rituals too. When you wake up in the morning and everything is not prepared, yeah, you feel like you're not going to start your day right. And it seems like you're a very well-organized person. I can definitely sense that from you. I have this habit of cleaning things for fun. I, I can't help it. Okay. Um, Jenny, if you have a few sentences to sh- just share, how will you introduce yourself to a new person? Well, it, it honestly very much depends on the setting that I'm in. We'll get into this, I'm sure, more in detail later. But being gender fluid and overall and, and gynosexual specifically, how I introduce myself sort of depends on how I'm feeling gender-wise that day. It's a situation where if I know that I'm introducing myself to someone or an organization that I expect I'm going to be in close contact with for a long period of time, as in it's not just this random person who I'm going to meet today and never again, but like a new boss or coworker or workplace environment, I'll often go with my name is John or Jenny Rarick. And don't worry about my pronouns. You can use whatever you want. I try to fit in. I'm gender fluid, that kind of thing, pretty early on if I can. That's pretty important to me. And I don't want to sort of leave it to the end. And for me, a a lot of who I am is based on my, my academic experience. I generally concentrate on things like you know, I double majored in environmental science and Japanese as an undergraduate, and my master's degree is in planetary science, geology more broadly, where I went to school and in Indiana and in California. I, I mostly concentrate on my past academic studies more so than anything else. Mm, I love that response. Thank you for introducing yourself. It's good for our listeners to start and get to know like what we're going to this. Um, conversation today. We have met through Pride House recently, and it's a community space, and it's a very special place. I want to let the listeners know more about your experience being at Pride House, and why is it a very special community space for the LGBT plus community here in Japan? First of all, I want to say that I was happy to see how it's both positioned in a very heavily trafficked area just outside of the big Shinjuku shopping districts. Mm. The way I see it is it's less about physical rest as it is about mental rest. Uh, It's a place where LGBTQ people can go and relax mentally in a way that is often difficult to do, at least in my personal experience, in just a regular restaurant or cafe, especially in my case, where no matter where I am or what I'm doing, like on a weekend or something, if I'm wearing a a cute outfit or something, then even if I'm with friends, if I go into any public space, I just know that there's always going to be a, a bunch of people who are looking at me and wondering, you know, wait, is that a guy, you know, or something like that. And even though I'm very resistant to embarrassment, it's still it's sort of like a weight on my mind all the time under those circumstances. Anywhere that I go, I'm always sort of consciously or subconsciously aware that I tend to sort of be the center of attention, whether I want to be or not. 
and not always in the best of ways, but going to a place where it's specifically designed for anyone on the on the spectrum, I can go there and I don't have to think about what other people think of me. And I'm hoping that sort of place can provide that sort of peace of mind for anyone else and that they can just sit there and, and relax and they can be perfectly open about who they are, how they want to appear. They don't have to care about it. They don't have the eyes of everyone else in the room on them. And I think that that's a huge burden off of uh, people's minds. I think those are great answers. And I really believe that kind of space is very important. And I'm so happy that finally now in Tokyo, there's a place we can go and just feel like to be connected with people that is in the community. It was my third time, I believe, going to Pride House. And I've seen different types of personalities and um, different types of gender identities. It's just good to be able to see and connect and see them like just being there and being comfortable. I love the fact that there is a place now where especially Japanese people where they can talk about their, you know, like whatever struggles they're facing. And I think Pride House can also provide those um, help and support for the members of the community. Yeah, I, I agree. I especially think that's important in Japan, where, you know, this traditional cultural concept of conformity. Mm. And so it can be as difficult as that kind of thing can be in a highly diverse country like the United States, where I'm from, it can be even worse in Japan. The more of these kinds of centers that can be put together in various cities, the better. I'm hoping in the future, instead of this sort of thing only occurring in the biggest cities in Japan, I think the next step is to try to get them in more regional cities, mm. uh, not just the super famous ones. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I definitely agree with that. And for the listeners to know, whereabouts are you located now? Currently, I live and work in the city of Hofu, spelled H-O-F-U. It's on the center south coast of Yamaguchi Prefecture, which is southwesternmost prefecture of the main island of Honshu. It's about 100,000 people in the city, and there's a couple of other cities around about the same size. I'm sort of in a in an area of Japan that's quite removed from foreign influence. Thank you for sharing that. But how long have you been living here in Japan, Jenny? A total of about two years. I lived in Tokyo for about one year as a study abroad student. That was about nine years ago. And I've lived here in, in the city of Hofu for another year. Great. So I wonder, during the couple of years you being here in Japan, what are the challenges for you living here as a foreigner and as your gender identity? In terms of simply expressing my gender identity, I don't really have that much difficulty doing it. The main problem is that where I live is I am surrounded on all sides by the schools I work at and also all the families with all the kids that I teach. If I want to go out and spend a night with friends and I want to wear a cute outfit, what happens if several students see me and then they report to their parents about what Redick Sensei was wearing this evening? <laughs> And that gets back to the school staff. That's a problem I really don't want to deal with. I recognize that it's one of those problems that in an enlightened society, I shouldn't have to deal with it. But this is the real world where 
you know, there's prejudice and misunderstandings. And so it could very easily become a problem I'd have to deal with. I have no problem wearing women's outfits around town just because I don't want to cause a stir, if you will, around the local community. But it, it does feel kind of, of limiting on, you know, I've got a lot of things in my closet that I can't wear on a regular basis, or I have to wear something over it so that I can take off an outer layer in a bathroom once I get to a different city kind of thing. You know, it, I wish I could just come and go from my apartment wearing what I want. It, it Ironically, it, it feels kind of like the concept of the teenager sneaking out of their parents' house because they know that they're wearing something <laughs> their parents won't approve of. It, it feels right. very similar to that, except I'm an adult and it's my own apartment, but I still have that feeling. Right. But again, I'm a difficult person to embarrass and I'm pretty open. And so I, I don't generally have too much trouble in terms of like being out, if you will, about mm, myself. Mm-hmm. So. Mm. Oh, wow. I love that about you. I wonder, though, what do you love about Japan? How the culture is so different? Just want to know, like, what do you love about being in this country? I love the the mountains and forests and the, the waterfalls and, you know, the beautiful little spots you can find in the countryside. Pottery, uh, bonsai. I've always been fascinated by traditional Japanese garden design. Horticultural is one of my hobbies. And it, it fascinates me. Now, Japanese culture design is so fundamentally different from Western concepts of the garden. The temple gardens in Kyoto, to say the, the palace gardens of Versailles in France, and you can see like a fundamental difference between aspects of Eastern and Western culture and, and worldview. And I have a background in geology, and Japan has some of the most interesting and unique geology in the world. And so it, for me, it's like living on top of a scientific paradise. <laughs> I can you know, walk down to the river and, and find rocks that are, people don't realize it, but some of the, the most interesting kinds of, of rocks you can find in the world are just littered around here. I find it interesting that in a way, I'm not a huge fan of all sorts of Japanese pop culture things. I'm very picky about that kind of thing in terms of like anime manga. I don't usually go out of my way to watch or, or read, but I will say that I'm very interested in how almost unintentionally Japanese pop culture has helped to normalize the idea of LGBTQ concepts around the world. And that's a huge topic. And there's lots of debate on specifically, well, is that necessarily a good thing? Are they fetishizing it too much or, you know, that that kind of controversy? I think there's something to be said for the idea of a younger person, maybe in their early teens, who's trying to come to grips with their gender identity and for them to be able to go to a bookstore or get you know, online and read a manga where the characters might be gay or might be uh, gender non-binary in some way and realize that, hey, this is a thing. You know, I'm not alone in the world. The author of this manga or the creators of this anime obviously have the same ideas. And again, there's arguments to be made one way or another, whether that's the, you know the best way to introduce a young person to that kind of topic. But I think that there's positive things to be said about how Japanese pop culture has, has influenced things around the world. You know, that, that's one of the things that sort of attracted me to Japan in general is I wanted to know more about the culture that was able to produce that kind of artistic material. 
I love what you should just share there. It's absolutely beautiful. Living here in Japan for 25 years, I learned a lot about the culture and I'm still learning. And I think if you go deep, deep down about Japanese culture, you'll learn a lot. And it's so fascinating. And I even love Japan even more the more I understand about their culture. So yes, I definitely agree. Jenny, I want to talk about your um, identity. Um, right before we came out to use the terms in LGBT umbrellas or gender identities, how did you consider yourself as? And can you please tell us more in your own words? Well, so in a broad sense, I consider myself to be gender fluid. Mm-hmm. I sort of waffle between more feminine days and more masculine days and depends on my my mood. And obviously, I am physically male. And so for me to be more feminine, it takes more work. <laughs> if I'm feeling you know, sick or, or depressed or something like that, then I don't feel like anyone. Mm-hmm. So overall, I feel very gender fluid and I, I never feel particularly masculine. I've never been very good at <laughs> being masculine. To be more specific, I consider myself gynosexual. I'm trying to remember when I actually encountered that term for the first time. I think it was fairly recently, around 2018, 2019. I still remember I was attending a just a regular meeting of my university's LGBTQ student association. They had some kind of presentation and they were passing out information and they, they had this booklet. This booklet had this huge section of every possible gender term, and I was sort of randomly flipping through it. And I came across this this word gynosexual, and I read the definition, and I was kind of shocked as to how well it fit me, because up until that point, I had really only considered myself gender fluid. I hadn't been able to define it any more than that. Gynosexual, as the, the Latin in the word kind of implies, it basically means that I am attracted to femininity, period, independent of the actual physical gender of the person in question. I want to be clear that by feminine, I am not talking about like the old timey traditional 20th century concept of the woman, you know, not dresses in high heels or oh, I fainted everything, that, that sort of unnecessary and, and annoying, oh, women are the, the weaker sex nonsense kind of thing. Uh, it's more just the a basic impression of the more feminine side of the gender expression spectrum. And so whether that's just a person's sort of physical shape combined with hairstyles, facial build, the kinds of clothing that they wear in general, any indications of being more feminine than masculine, I'm attracted to. The way I describe it is like if I encounter someone, I notice their gender expression before I notice who they are physically. So if it's a boy and they're relatively feminine, I notice that and I pay more attention to that than I do the fact that they're a boy. If they're a girl, I notice the fact that they're feminine before I notice or care about the fact that they're physically a girl. In that sense, some people might consider that a form of bisexuality where, you know, I can be attracted to both men and women, but I'm really only attracted to men if they express themselves in a feminine way. It's more that I'm attracted to 
a physical representation of being feminine than I am whether, you know, what the actual person's body is like. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's really illuminating. And while I'm doing a research about current um, articles about sexual identities and all that, I found out there's a gender identity list of about 72, 71, yeah, I believe, <laughs> um, different types of gender identity list out by psychologists and sex experts. And of course, we're not going to mention everything here on the podcast and it will take time, but there's so much to learn and there's so much out there that I didn't even know. So I think it's really important to for us to understand and get educated about all these types of gender identities if they really wanted to understand our community. It's surprising to me if I can live for all these years being on the spectrum myself, but being actively involved with LGBTQ events and organizations for years took me so long to find that term. Mm. It makes me wonder just how many other people are in the same position still that there's a word in a book somewhere that if they were to find it would really help them, you know, better to find themselves. But, you know, there's just so many. And, you know, that was my problem for so long. <laughs> mm, you know, absolutely true. I absolutely believe in that. I wanted to go to your coming out stories. It must have been really challenging for you. And would you mind sharing some of those stories with us? Yeah. So for me, coming out is kind of a hard thing to define because on the surface, you could say, well, OK, so I'm physically a boy. I'm attracted to femininity, which means that for the most part, more often than not, I'm naturally attracted to women. So I'm not gay. Someone not thinking too deeply about it would just say, well, what's there to come out about? <laughs> but of course, it's not that simple. I never had the sort of the talk with my parents or, you know, like a coming out party or, or anything like that. There is no like one day I could point to and say, before this day, I was in a closet. And after this day, I came out. It was more just sort of a slow progression. I consider myself very fortunate that both of my parents are very highly educated and also have a very understanding and, and liberal outlook on, on life. And they never really expressed any, any concern over you know, how I was developing in terms of my gender identity. I, I specifically remember starting around the age of around 12 or 13 years old, I started sort of feeling actively frustrated with men's clothing. This stuff is all bland. It's boring. I know it's practical and it can be comfy, but why do all these girls get to look sexy and cute and I can't? Even back then, I, I was never a shy person. To heck with this. Uh, I'm going to start you know, wearing girls' clothes. I basically started by wearing girls' jeans. Because in my experience, jeans are, they're very practical and they're very useful. And, you know, you can, at least in America, not in Japan, but in America, you know, as a high school student, you wear them to school all the time. So in and of themselves, there's nothing unusual, but they're highly differentiated between female and, and male. So girls' jeans are very different from boys' jeans and they're very recognizable. I started purposely wearing girls' jeans in school. and. That was when I was 14 years old. So I was a freshman in high school. That was also the, the point in my life where I came to the realization that the more open I am about expressing my gender identity, the better off I was. Because you might think, oh, goodness, you know, here's this 
nerdy kid, 14 years old, freshman in high school, and he's wearing girls' jeans around. That's a perfect you know, recipe for getting bullied quite badly, except mm. at least for me, maybe I was just lucky, but I basically wasn't bullied at all. I think part of that was because I did have friends. I wasn't a loner. You know, there were people who were around me who would support me, other students, but also just being so open about it, basically walking around, this is who I am. I don't care. The sorts of people who would, I think, try to bully me probably recognized that okay, what are you going to do? Call me gay? Well, no, but I'm not going to argue the point. And so, you know, you can call me names or something, but eh, whatever. I never really encountered any of that. So that sort of boosted my confidence quite a bit. And the the teachers didn't seem to mind. And again, as long as I was following the school dress code, I wasn't wearing booty shorts or halter tops or something like that, you know? (laughs) And uh, I mean, honestly, I, I, kind of wanted to but i couldn't <laughs> the school dress code just says what you can't wear it doesn't say if you are a girl you can't wear this if you're a boy you can't wear this and so i wasn't technically breaking any rules so even if a teacher wanted to get after me they couldn't mm-hmm. so i mean my parents were well well aware of this i had an allowance and so you know i could go and buy my own clothes and they're obviously aware that my gender identity it doesn't fit into this stereotypical, classic, old-fashioned gender binary modality. I have a trans cousin, and my my parents are really open-minded. So we just sort of don't really talk about it because neither of us have a reason to talk about it. And I sort of alluded to this earlier that I found that it's important for me to come out about being gender fluid very early on in a situation where I'm encountering a new work environment or I'm going to meeting people for the first time that I'm going to be around quite a bit for a long time. And so when I came back to Japan here to Yamaguchi Prefecture and I was going around meeting with the administration and the staff of the schools I was going to be working at, one of the very first things was I made a point of saying, I'm gender fluid and I wear girls clothes, I wear boys clothes. I have to admit that that was actually pretty terrifying for me because I was being led into this room and here's the principal and vice principal of the school. And of course, the Japanese work environment. So there's lots of bowing and formal Japanese and presenting omiyage, the traditional gifts. And this is, again, sort of rural conservative Japan. And to a certain extent, just me being a foreigner, they kind of expect me to be different and strange. Fortunately, all my schools and the staff have been really nice. And and of course, it's a school. So in terms of like dressing feminine at work, the furthest I go is I'll wear like women's track pants or a woman's like sweater or something in winter. It's all in line with what the female staff wear at school. So. I mean, it's a school. I do have a sense of propriety of you know what should be worn in, in that sort of work environment. So coming out like that, sort of on the first day to your, your boss's boss kind of thing, I think I earned a few gray hairs on those days. But I found that it's much, much easier in the long run to be out and open about that kind of thing from day one, as opposed to being in the closet for months or years. And then one day, just having enough of it and showing up to school, you know, even if it's formal workwear, but like a long, you know, skirt or, or a women's top or something, that's a much harder thing to explain. 
And so I'd, I'd rather be be open from day one than than delay it. And that's a mistake that I've made in my life a couple times, and I've always regretted mm-hmm. it. So I, I hope to, that I've I've learned from past experience. Wow! Like, thank you for sharing all these stories. Absolutely, a lot of things that you've said there, like, is so important and so valuable. One thing that really resonated with me was when you were a child that's in school. And you being, you, I admire your strength for being strong, not caring what people think about you. And I really resonated with that because back when I was in the Philippines, when I was in elementary school and high school in the Philippines, back in the 90s, 80s, 90s, it's normal to be bullied. If they find you unique and different from other kids, you will be bullied the whole time. It's normal to be bullied. And I, grew up to that. Like what you said, I didn't care at all. And that made me, I think, strong and had that confidence and, you know, and went through and overcome all the, you know, like the bullying part of my school days. I'm also um, really glad to hear that your parents were very open-minded about it. And like what you said, there's no conversation has to be done with that. I also think that our parents, they just don't know. They don't, they don't have the knowledge about how to take care of us. They don't have education tools for us to be, you know, more understanding for them how to take care of us, how they will walk us through our struggles in life. I don't think they have that too. I also love the fact during your, um, in, in the schools that you are, you're teaching, the people are very, um, open minded and also nice and understanding about you. Your confidence is important too, because if a lot of us from the LGBT community, doesn't have that strength, doesn't have that confidence. We need that every time, right? In order for us to thrive. Otherwise, I think it'll be very, very difficult and challenging for us to go on with our lives. Yeah. Uh, when I was living in the U.S., I was a member of an adult, generally like transgender binary support group. So many of the the people in in that group, you know, much more reserved and and shy about, or you know, le- less open about their actual gender identity. And it, I tend to just being by myself and used to being who I am. I tend to forget how I'm rather fortunate in a number of ways, and I tend to forget that other people might have much worse circumstances than me, and it's much more difficult for them to be out. I, I think I talked about this some with you when we met. One of the reasons why I tend to be relatively flamboyant, I guess is the best term, or like very open about wearing, you know, cute outfits in public and that kind of thing, is that I'm hoping that if there is, you know, someone else passing me on the street or sees me on the train or the bus or whatever, who is struggling with their gender identity, trying to you know, have more confidence or thinking about coming out or something like that, that if they see someone like me who's so blatantly open about it, that will give them some confidence that there's someone else out there, at least to some extent similar to them, who has obviously sort of overcome those boundaries in society. And I'm hoping that even though I'll never know who that person is, I'll never talk to them directly, that in a way, by being so open about myself, that I'm sort of like giving them a message without ever actually knowing who they are. Uh, It is possible to be out and to be confident in who you are. And to a certain extent, that can be applied 
to some of my students because I work in both elementary and middle schools in Japan. The kids are a bit older than in America because Japanese middle schools are equivalent to American seventh to ninth grade. And so these kids, they're mostly in their early teens. And so they're going through the same sort of self-discovery that everyone to some extent goes through. Of course, I'm not being flamboyant in school, but if I'm wearing a woman's top or women's track pants or a long like a dress or something like that, this student or that student, that might help them also realize that they're not alone. And even though I'll never know it, them seeing me just being a regular teacher, a regular employee of the school and not caring about strict gender identity clothing wise, that who knows, that might have a big effect on their their life five, 10 years down the road. And so I'm I'm hoping that at least in a subtle way, I can benefit society sort of long term through that mm. uh, without ever going out of my way to say anything to anyone or, you know, making a big spectacle of it, just sort of being who I am. Mm, I think that is just thought provoking. And I love the fact that you're going that in purpose of letting people know that it's okay. And again, representation is so important. And I think what, what you're doing, representation out there, people who can do it, who doesn't have that strength to do it, you're doing it for them. And you're affirming and you're, you're, you're showing that we can. And it's so funny because today, right before I went back home, I was walking on the way back home and I literally just randomly bump into a person who is, I don't know his gender identity, but he's wearing a stockings and a wig. And I believe he's Japanese. I'm, I'm literally walking on his back and he's in the front. There's this another Japanese person walking in front of me, just observing how like Japanese respond when they see something different. I think there's a respect of boundaries in Japan. If there's something different that they see, I mean, they don't really like say anything or they don't judge people. So I think that's respect that they have. I always believe that Japanese people respect and I never been disrespected and being bullied in Japan for being who I am. It was just amazing to see that. And I've, I've seen so many um, scenarios like that, but it's just amazing how you can see that here in Japan. I was going to ask you in Japan, do you think you're more comfortable living here as a gynosexual or you're more comfortable living in, in America? Yeah. Well, it's kind of hard to be certain about that just because there's sort of pros and cons to both countries in mm. terms of that. I mean, America has far greater cultural diversity, especially in the bigger cities in America. I know I keep going back to clothing, but in America, it seems like the sorts of clothing that you can wear in public is is less. Uh, in Japan, it tends to be a bit more conservative. When I'm in a, a bigger city in the United States, I can sort of wear whatever the heck I want and I don't care at all, which is really nice. Whereas in Japan, I tend to think about it a bit more before I commit to an outfit for the day. America also has a lot more LGBTQ support facilities and organizations, even in quite small locations. I mean, my hometown is all of like 80,000 people. It's smaller than the city I'm living in now, but we've got a big university. So they have their own LGBTQ organization. The city has its 
organization and we've got the surprisingly well-developed LGBTQ youth organization and adult trans support group and all this stuff in Hofu City where I live here in Japan. I mean, that stuff just does not exist. We're lucky to get like one LGBTQ talk or conference or something in City Hall once a year. You know, that's kind of about it. But on the other hand, Japan has a much lower crime rate and is much safer, especially at night. If I want to, you know, I can like go to a, a nightclub or something, wear that kind of outfit. I can walk from one end of this city to the other and back at two o'clock in the morning and not be afraid at all for any reason. And I just can't do that in the United States. I mean, if I'm wearing something nice, I'm either walking around in daytime or if it's at night, I'm with friends, you know, with a group or like I'm staying in a very public place, you know, never be alone, you know, on a, a dark side street kind of thing. And so there are some ways that Japan is more free. In some ways, Japan's more restrictive. In some ways, America's more free. In some ways, America's more restrictive for a variety of reasons. So unfortunately, I can't give you an absolute, you know, yes or no to one or the other on that one. It's just different, I mm. guess. Absolutely, I agree. Like, I'm, I'm really glad you brought it up, the safety that we have here in Japan. That's also one big reason how I lived here for this long in Japan, because I thought my safety here, anywhere else in the world, even in my own country in the Philippines, I don't think I'm going to have the same safety that I have here in Japan. So I don't have to worry about that part, which is a big part for us, because mm. yeah. we are still not accepted in many communities. So... Um, having that safe space and you're not thinking about your safety anymore, I think is such a big thing for us, right? So I'm really glad that you brought that up and thank you for sharing your thoughts about it. If there is one thing you want to say to the cis people mm-hmm. to make them understand about gynosexuality, what, what would you like to tell them? Well, I think that Gender fluidity in general, and in my specific case, gynosexuality, and, and of course, other, other people in the gender fluid umbrella will have various different terms for who they are. But one thing that I see a lot coming from cisgendered community is that even if they're like generally supportive or, or not against LGBTQ, they tend to have a... I don't... I don't want to insult anyone by generalizing too much, but there seems to be they're only sort of aware of non-binary gender identities in a relatively shallow way or a very simplistic way. I've gotten a lot of automatic assumptions that, oh, you're a boy, you wear girls clothes, you must be gay. And that's sort of as deep as they think about it. I have friends who are gay. I have nothing personally against being gay. It's just that since I don't see myself as gay, that gets kind of annoying. (laughs) Uh, So what I'd like is for the cisgendered community to be more aware of all the, the, the nuances and the diversity within LGBTQ that just because I'm physically male, but I present myself as very feminine a lot of the time that that doesn't automatically say anything about my sexual orientation. That doesn't guarantee that I am gay or something like that. And uh, I see the same thing happening sort of the other way around that, oh, I, I have a friend who's a girl who 
you know, really likes guys' clothes because they're comfortable and they have convenient pockets and that kind of thing. And, you know, oh, you're wearing, you know, cargo shorts. You must be lesbian. Well, not necessarily, no. The, the clothing someone wears does not give you the, the magical ability to automatically know what their, their sexual gender preferences are uh, in terms of relationships. And I've had people who are like, kind of shocked when I say, oh, well, I, I mostly like girls, you know, like, really? Well, then why are you wearing girls' clothes? As though any hint that I might be straight suddenly denies me the right to express, you know, my gender identity. And so I think that uh, there needs to be further education on the fact that someone's outward appearance does not equal their uh, presumed interests, I guess. Mm, what a beautiful answer. Thank you so much for that. And I think our society has convinced us that there are just two options for gender identity, which is male and female, based on mm. biological sex. But in reality, there's more fluidity. So um, I love your answer. And to continue with that topic, I want to ask you, how can someone be the best ally our community. I thought about that quite a bit, and I've, I've also heard other people who have responded to similar questions. For me, I think it's the best way I can describe it is that it's important to, as an ally, to just treat the people in your life who are in the LGBTQ community as just perfectly normal people. There are situations, I think, where People who consider themselves allies think that they're doing them a favor by being like, oh, wow, look at you. If you're a girl and you're out with your girlfriend or you're a boy and you're out with your boyfriend or you're, oh, look at you, you know, you're so amazing. You're, you know, you're so cute with your girlfriend. You're so cute with your boyfriend. That's so great that you're so gay and so open and stuff. It's like, well, okay, thanks, I guess. But drawing a whole lot of unnecessary attention to people who just want to be normal. I'm not doing this as though I'm like a performer in a parade or a play or, or something like that. In, in a perfect world, for me, no one would go out of their way to say, oh, you're so cute or you're so sexy or, you know, you know look at you being so out. No one would pay any attention to me be, because anyone else who is gender fluid would also be as out as I am because society would be fine with that. That's the kind of thing that, that we're aiming for. I don't want to be put up on a pedestal. I'm glad that, that you're not talking to a, a theoretical ally here. You know, I, I'm glad that you are supportive, certainly, but don't go shouting to the heavens if you come across someone who's open about who they are, because that it's sort of like, even though you're trying to be positive, and, but it's still pointing out, it's making us stand out. And it's not about standing out. It's about being normalized in society. So the, it's sort of like going too far and you think you're going in the right direction, but it's pushing it too far. <laughs> so to bring it back, if you're an ally, the best thing that you can do is go with me to a restaurant like a friend would. Go shopping with me like a friend would. You know, Hang out with me like a friend would. You don't have to point out what I'm wearing. You don't have to say how amazing it is because that's how it should be. We should all be able to live our everyday lives and be able to appear how we want to without it drawing a huge amount of, of attention, even if it's supposedly positive. I love your answer. Thank you so much. And I just want to add, I think you mentioned it earlier too, that I think the best thing they can do is 
educate themselves, like listening to the podcast, listening to conversations of LGBT community, and they can also reach out and have respectful dialogue with someone who has more knowledge about these terms and topics. And like what you said, if you ask politely how they identify and how they prefer to be addressed, if they do that to me, if they do that to you, I don't think we'll be angry or mad about it. We'll be no. <laughs> pleased to let them know, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You don't get very far in life without asking questions uh, in general. So I'm happy to answer if a random person wants to know things about me. Oh, sure. We, we don't improve society by keeping our mouths shut is the way I see it. So, so true. So true. I want to ask you about your dating and relationship. Do you have any struggles with that? Well, I've always sort of had struggles in my life, no matter whether it was in Japan or the United States, when it comes to to dating and relationships. I've had a couple fairly brief short-term relationships, but I've never had a long-term committed one. Like I've never lived with you know a romantic partner. Part of the difficulty is is that in a statistical sense, I'm not uh, in the most common category of people. And, and it's it's true to a certain extent that there's no such thing as a normal person. You know, everyone's unique. Everyone has their differences. But in any society, there's always an average trend towards the mean, if you will. There are certain cultural things that people are more likely to be or more likely to have as interests. And so it's more likely that those people will find other people that they feel similar to and, and can form relationships with. Whereas I'm kind of a statistical outlier. There are fewer people in general around me who I could feel a connection with and that they would feel a connection with back. Like, for instance, it's kind of like a logic puzzle. So for me to, to be in a committed relationship, most likely that would be with a girl. Ultimately, I, I do really want to have a, a biological family that would require me to find a female who is at least partially interested in a physical male, but also a female who is can be physically attracted to someone who's feminine. For a potential long term partner, I'm never going to hide who I am from that person. I'm never going to you know attempt to be in the closet around them. That makes it more difficult because I've got to find that sort of unique person who can be attracted to me both physically as a male, but also as a person who's very gender fluid and, and expresses themselves in a fairly feminine way. Now, honestly, so far, I haven't had a whole lot of luck. I've had sort of brief relationships here and there, but nothing ever really seems to stick. And so, you know, I, I wish I could say oh, here's how I found my partner and here's how I, we made the relationship work and here's all this advice for other people. But unfortunately, in, in this instance, I'm the one who's kind of more in need of, of uh, advice than than able to give it. Mm. Oh, but wow. Thank you for sharing your honest answer. And I really appreciate that. And I know that there's always someone for us. I'm sure when, when the right timing will come, it will come for you. And I, yeah, I really hope that you'll find that when it comes to relationship. Yeah, well, so do I, very much so. <laughs> Jenny, I want to be respectful with your um, time. A few more questions before we close and wrap up the show. Sure. I've got plenty of time. Don't don't worry about me. 
Okay, got it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Like a fun question for you. One of my career being is being a DJ, and I love all sorts of music. Mm-hmm. Imagine if we are in a hotspot club in Tokyo, and I was there playing in a DJ booth. And if I'll give you an opportunity to request a song and I'll play it for you, what it would be and why? Well, I don't know. I could see it being club music, I suppose. But one of my favorite songs is uh, Megitsune by uh, Baby Metal. It's a fascinating mixture of sort of heavy metal with traditional Japanese shamisen music. Mm. And it's, it's sort of based around the famous Sakura song. In Japanese, it has a really fun beat and rhythm to it, so it makes for good dance music. But also, the lyrics of the song—it's about women's empowerment. Mm. You know, they're all—they're all female. And Megitsune in, in Japanese is a female fox, so it's basically like I'm a smart, intelligent, crafty female fox. Be respectful of me. Be be afraid of me, kind of thing. It's a, a really good song. On both musical and and cultural levels, so I think that would probably be my first pick. Baby Metal is a Japanese band or is it American band? Japanese band. They started oh, in okay. uh, Hiroshima at a dance school in 2010. All the band members uh, started as kids. They were in like a child talent agency. It's the sort of thing where like Japanese idol groups come from, mm. and. They started out kind of as like a youth idol group, but very quickly they went in a very sort of unique direction and they stopped doing the sort of classical, what people think of as like pop music, Japanese idol group music, and turned themselves into sort of a child heavy metal, but mixed in with like Japanese kawaii culture. The older they got, the less cutesy it was and the more heavy metal they put into it and now all of them are in their mid-20s some of their music is pretty hardcore (laughs) oh okay i never heard of them i definitely checked them out thank you for sharing that and we brought up some keywords there when you were explaining it like you said like women empowerment i love that already (laughs) i'm a huge supporter and proponent of women empowerment That's great to know. Last question for you. You mentioned earlier about you studied environmental science, right? Am I correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does that connect to like environment, like what with climate change and what we're expecting right now and all that too? Oh, yeah. That's all wrapped up into it. But it's more than just like climate change. I did that. It was one of my two undergraduate majors. And so it, it never got very specified. I didn't continue that into grad school. So it's a lot of general how the Earth's environment works in general, and also like how various industries work. Like how does the coal mining industry work? Like how does steel mills work? Uh, And like solar farms and and wind farms and what effects do those have on the environment? So there's there was a lot of things like learning like different types of coal and different types of energy production use and also but also more things like meteorology like climate variation weather temperature different like forest biomes desert biomes and of course you know climate change and stuff gets wrapped up into that mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm, it's more mm-hmm. just environmental science as a broad umbrella and everything you can think of that feeds into that sort of does. Yeah, thank you for emphasizing that. And then I actually love science and I love all these topics that you mentioned. And one thing that I always ask my guests, what sustainable practices they're doing in their own lifestyle 
And I want to ask that to you. I think this is this has more effect, or it's it's something that people should do more in America as opposed to Japan. I'm not vegetarian. I try my best not to eat beef because cattle farming, especially in the United States, uses up a huge amount of agricultural resources, especially land. I, I think one of the the facts that a lot of people aren't aware of is that most of the corn grown in the United States is grown not to feed humans, but to feed cattle for beef production. So when you go and buy a steak or a hamburger, that cow had to have gotten its food from somewhere, and that cow got its food from cornfields, and those cornfields take up a huge amount of land. If it wasn't for the massive amount of, of beef production in America, we wouldn't actually need nearly as much farmland as we as we're using. I also try to eat, and the same for my parents, we try to eat organic. So it's not these mm. huge, disturbing, controlled animal feeding operations where you've got like a million chickens in one gigantic building kind of thing. I mean, let's see, another thing, when I moved into this apartment, more than half of the light fixtures were old-fashioned electric light bulbs. I went around and I replaced all of them with LED lights. I don't run heater or air conditioner at all unless I get super desperate. In the winter, like I have a little portable heater and I'll just heat one room at a time. So if, if I'm in my office for a couple hours, I'll just heat that room. If I'm going to go to bed, then I'll take the heater into my bedroom and heat it up for an hour before going to bed. And so I'm, I'm not constantly keeping my apartment all at one temperature or another and uh, and I never have any of that stuff running when I'm not home. Uh, always have all the lights off, air conditioning off, heater off. What I consider to be common sense stuff that also incidentally helps me save money in the process, uh, at least over time. So. Mm, mm. Yes, absolutely true. And thank you for doing such activities. I believe all these small things that we do contributes to a bigger goal. And um, I love the fact that you're doing a lot of, you're supporting the organic farming. I do I do that as well. I'm more organic now. I support organic. And you're so right about the cattle farm industry. It's not just cattle farm where the land is also like the corn farms, which also feeds the cattle. And not just that, also, I think not just the land and also water now is we're, we're running out of water and it's becoming an issue now around the world, how water is crucial, becoming crucial and becoming topic and issues right now. Um, so I love that you're, you're mindful about doing this small thing. Is that like how you were, um, interested to study about environmental science? I've always been extremely interested in the sciences. My very first interest when I was very young, like four years old, was I began a very strong interest in uh, astronomy uh, that I've kept up through my whole life. Probably not the answer that you were looking for, but one of the, the main reasons why I went into environmental science when I was in college was because it was one of the studies of branches of science that I could pursue that didn't require a huge number of high-level mathematics classes, <laughs> high-level physics and chemistry and all that stuff, a lot of that you know, required calculus, that sort of thing. And even though I'm super interested in the sciences, I'm more of a sort of an artsy person uh, in terms of personality and capability. And I wasn't looking forward to spending years struggling with advanced mathematics. <laughs> but then a couple of years into college, uh, I got a lot more interested in, in Japanese. And so I added that on as a second major and finished out the environmental science stuff and 
pursued Japanese exclusively. Mm. I told you earlier I love science, right? But I I never really loved mathematics too. So when chemistry and physics, I didn't like it, but I love the fact of all things about science. But yeah, thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. So Jenny, I just want to thank you so much for making the time today. I yeah. truly enjoyed our conversations. I just want to thank you for educating me and the listeners, our listeners. I'm sure they have learned a lot too today. And thank you for speaking your truth and inspiration for our community. Please continue sharing your wisdoms and please know that I always support you. So thank you again. Any final words from you, Jenny, before we wrap up the show? This is my first actual podcast that I've ever recorded. I've given plenty of talks and a couple of lectures, uh, some online. As a first podcast, um, I think this is a wonderful way for me to, to start with podcasting. I, I really couldn't think of a, a better first episode or show for me to be involved with. And it sort of fits perfectly in with the kind of community outreach and topics and subjects that are important to me. And I think that good things to educate other people about. So I, I'm really appreciative and very thankful that you gave me this this opportunity as a, a place for me to start. Thank you again. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe I'll I'll be in Tokyo again next year or something like that. It's Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much, Jenny. Yeah, thank you so much, Jenny. I really appreciate it. And I, I will support you. And hopefully we can have you back on the podcast and maybe we can talk some in, in a year or so, like, you know, like how improvements, you know, we had, you know, towards the year. So again, thank you so much. And I appreciate your time. And I hope to connect with you again soon whenever you're coming back to Tokyo or when I, I hopefully I get the chance to visit you there. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you reach up until this last minute of the show, I am extremely grateful for you for tuning in the whole entire episode. If you enjoyed our episode today, please share it to your friends. You can copy and paste the link wherever you are listening to right now. Text your friend, share on your Instagram stories or your Facebook page tag me on your social media when you post it i'd love to hear from you share your thoughts on the interview that i had today and if it's your first time here once again please do me a favor to subscribe on the podcast leave us a review in every review it makes me so happy so i'm looking forward to your ratings and review on apple Podcasts. you can impact someone's life right now by just sharing our episode today I hope you enjoyed this episode today as much as I do, and I hope you know how much you matter, how much I appreciate your time for listening, how much I love you and appreciate you. I am truly grateful for your kindness and your support. And as I always say, sprinkle kindness wherever you go. I love you and stay safe. Join us again next Tuesday for the Breakfast with Tiffany show with Tiffany Rossdale.